Ephesians 4. And while you're turning to that text, just to kind of give you a little personal insight here, God made pastors and elders differently. We're all different. And to be sure, there should be some common factors that we're following God's will for the ministry of Jesus Christ. But there are particular emphases and, and loves and types of, of interests that we have, certain things that motivate us and, and make us tick, so to speak. And I was thinking about that this week because somebody asked me the question a couple of weeks ago, other than studying and preaching the Word of God, what makes you tick? What makes you uh, excited about the ministry as a pastor? Well, I got to thinking about that. And other than love for the Lord and a desire to obey Him, I think one of the things that really makes me tick is simply happy church members. Happy church members are very exciting to me because it means you're conforming your lives to, to the Word of God. It means you're humble. It means you're growing. It means you're eager to learn. And you're a joy to be around. You're a joy to labor alongside. And I've observed what a happy church member looks like over the years. Coincidentally, it so happens that those same criteria are also found in Scripture. Imagine that. I could spend a whole message just listing the qualities of a happy and healthy church member, and we would find corresponding commands in the New Testament that you're obeying as a happy church member. One of those qualities I've noticed and is confirmed in the New Testament is that they give great honor to their leaders. They give honor to their leaders. Now, I'm a little uncomfortable saying that out loud, to be honest with you, but that's the word used in the New Testament for church members who are healthy and who are in in a right relationship with their leaders. Now, the awkwardness obviously comes in the fact that I am one of the elders, one of the leaders at Grace Bible Church, but it's also my duty to teach you what the Bible says about your leaders. Now, all of this is in relation to our Joyful Generosity Building Campaign. And we've been walking through some reasons for giving of our financial resources. So far, we've observed that we give because of God's ownership. We give because of God's grace. We give because of God's provision. And today, I'd like to examine the idea that we give because of God's church, because of His church, specifically the the shepherd and sheep relationship and how this works together. Now, before I give you our kind of general direction for this morning, I want to do something a little bit unusual. This past Sunday marked a moment which no doubt will go down in church history. Our beloved John MacArthur celebrated 50 years of ministry at Grace Community Church, and I know some of you snuck down there to see that last week. I know who you are, but one of you brought me a gift from that, so I'm thankful for that. But the preaching ministry of John MacArthur has had more influence than any preacher on earth since Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century. That is, that is absolutely undisputed. And so in honor of God's faithfulness through that servant, I'm going to quote extensively from Dr. MacArthur this morning and, and weave in some of his thoughts into our message. He's been a tremendous influence on me personally. He was the first man I ever heard preach a truly expository sermon that was simply faithful to the text and was driven by the verbs and the nouns and the context of the passage. And all of your pastors are proud to have sat under Dr. MacArthur's instruction and the instruction of the professors at the Master Seminary. Now, before we get going here, just a little disclaimer. I'm teaching you what the Bible says about your pastors, about your elders. I'm not asking for anything which the church isn't already uh, graciously providing. Any of our elders could very adequately teach and understand these concepts as they do. 
Dr. MacArthur made a similar disclaimer in the message on 1 Timothy 5. He said, quote, I don't want anybody to buy me a robe or a backward collar or a special hat. I thought that was a great observation. But just so you know, I have searched my own heart before the Lord, and my motive is very strictly to teach you the Word of God so that you can be obedient to Him for the sake of Christ in the matter of attitudes and actions concerning Christ's church so that you can be a happy and contented church member. I'm thankful that our elders understand this. I'm not preaching to them. They are in agreement with what I am speaking about. So this morning, to organize our thoughts, we're just going to divide our thoughts kind of into three pieces here as we think about giving because of God's church. The first piece we'll call the church's gift from God. The second piece, the church's gift to God. And the third piece, the church's faith in God. So the church's gift from God, the church's gift to God, and the church's faith in God. And I'll repeat those for you. We'll look at several different texts, but two of them primarily. First of all, let's examine the church's gift from God. The church's gift from God. We're in Ephesians 4. And in this text, the Apostle Paul tells us of a couple of the effects, a couple of the the outworkings of the ascension of Jesus Christ after his resurrection. And we find these in verse 8. Ephesians 4, verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So these effects, the first one, he, he led a host of captives. These are all who would subsequently follow Christ by faith. You are a captive of Christ and thankful to be such. And the second effect is he gave gifts to men. Now the prevailing wisdom is that this is speaking of spiritual gifts such as listed in, in Romans 12, the speaking gifts, the serving gifts, and so forth. But the immediate context here doesn't indicate that. It says that these are gifts to men, and they are gifts of men. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, we don't need the apostles and prophets anymore. We have a completed Bible, which Acts chapter 2 calls the apostles' teaching. So we don't need the apostles. We don't need the prophets. Evangelists, in the context of how the gospel was spread in the New Testament, speaks primarily of church-planting men who proclaim the gospel to peoples who haven't yet heard of Christ. The shepherds, or the pastors, and the teachers then are left to do the wonderful work of teaching and maturing the saints, the people of God. Some take the Greek grammatical construction to mean pastor-teachers with a, with a hyphen. There's some debate over that, but I think I can simplify it for you. There may be teachers in the church who are not pastors, but there better not be pastors who are not teachers. It is the gift of explaining God's word. And we should just briefly note two important side ideas here, side issues. First of all, the shepherds of the church are to be men. They are to be males. This is made clear in the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And the second issue we should note is that the pastors, shepherds, overseers, elders, these are all terms that are used interchangeably in the New Testament. It's the same office, the same person. There's no hierarchy of one type of shepherd over another. There isn't a pyramid scheme, so to speak, for the church. The elders are equal in authority. They form a leadership team. Now, I've been given the title senior pastor mostly because that's what our bylaws say. I'm not even sure I completely agree with it, but that's okay. But all that means is a leader among equals, the the primary Bible teacher of a local church. 
It carries no weight of authority beyond that of another elder. We work as a team. And in fact, in some areas, I voluntarily defer to our other elders, particularly in the area of church finances. But I want to camp on this attitude for a bit, the attitude of viewing the shepherds as a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, because this makes all the difference in whether you're a happy church member or not. It affects radically your contentment in the local church. So I want to just give you some reasons to view the shepherds, the the pastors, as a gift from God. The first reason is the Bible says so. Now, we should let that be enough, but we'll go on from there. The text says they're a gift from God. Verse 11 says that Christ gave these men. It means he granted something. It is a gift. It's a blessing. It's a favor. It's a delight to the church. The Bible says so. And if the Bible says it, then that ought to be reflected in our attitude. A second reason to view shepherds as gifts, for their calling. For their calling. The question is sometimes asked, who chooses the pastors of the church? Well, the answer is God does. God chooses them. I believe with all of my heart in the call to gospel ministry. And scripture certainly bears this out. It's proven in scripture. The example of all the apostles as, as one example, they were designated, they were called out, they were chosen by Christ himself. Some have a call to full-time vocational ministry, devoting their lives to this calling. Others to the important task of leadership while being self-supplying and self-supporting financially. 1 Timothy 3, 1 says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And the question is, well, where does that desire come from? It comes from God. And it's accompanied by a gifting to fulfill that call and an ability to fulfill that call. It's a yearning placed in the heart of a few men who ultimately get to the point where they can't do anything else. I have friends in the ministry who who have been engineers and doctors and lawyers. I have friends in the ministry who have built giant buildings as construction managers and, and done all kinds of things, but they ultimately come down to this is all that God would have me to do now is to proclaim his word to his people. John MacArthur told of his calling. He said, quote, I'm afraid not to be a pastor. And that's the truth. When I was 18, God threw me out of a car going 70 miles an hour. I landed on my back and slid 110 yards on the pavement. By God's grace, I wasn't killed. And by the grace of God, I committed to become a pastor Because prior to that, I knew the Lord had called me to that. I was being rebellious. And I decided if the Lord is going to fight like that, I'm going to give in and be a pastor or whatever else he wants me to be. And he goes on, every time I scratch my back, I feel the scars of that because they're there to remind me that I should be faithful to the pastorate or there might be another highway somewhere in my future. That is really true. So we... We see them as a gift because of their calling. So third reason to view shepherds as a gift for their training. For their training. We don't insist that leaders in the church all have seminary education. Some are self-taught. Others have been well discipled in the context of the church. But the Lord for many, many centuries now has been training men in the seminary context. The seminary exists to serve the local church. It doesn't exist for its own benefit. It it exists to serve the church of Jesus Christ, to greatly accelerate the learning and the growth, to be able to shepherd God's people. 1 Timothy 4, 6, Paul says that Timothy had to be, quote, trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 
And for the most part, well-trained, faithful men are not standing in their pulpits making stuff up. They're studying and they're explaining the intricacies and the nuances of Scripture if they're using their training. There are men who have devoted themselves to being saturated in the Bible in that they can take what it took them 25 hours to learn and explain it to you in 45 or 50 minutes. That takes time. That takes effort. Takes absolute diligence. I went through seminary with a friend who was a, a medical doctor. He had, he had, in fact, gone through several specialties as a doctor. And he said after a year of seminary, this is harder because I can memorize facts as a medical student, but this is the word of God that I have to make a part of my very soul. And so there is a training involved and we view the shepherds as a gift for their training. Another reason to view them as a gift for their testing for their testing. 2 Timothy 2.15, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, do your best to present to yourself as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Approved has to do with being approved after having been tested. A man doesn't just say, I think I'll be a leader in the church. That's not okay. He has to be trained. He has to be tested. He has to be approved. I have two photographs which are extremely meaningful to me and they're the two times I've graduated from the Master's Seminary and been photographed with Dr. John MacArthur because for me that is, a, that, that is proof that I've been tested and that I've been approved. In my office hangs my ordination which bears his signature and the signature of other qualified men of God. Men don't just decide I think I'll be a leader in the church. Others must approve them. Others must test them. Here's a fifth reason to view shepherds as a gift for their burden, for their burden. Multiple places in the New Testament give pastors and elders the duty of leading, of shepherding. And this isn't just giving gentle life advice from the scriptures. This has to do with spiritually leading by example, by their hard work, by their vision, by their preaching and teaching. And so Hebrews 13, 17 says, that you are, quote, to obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's a burden that I will answer to the Lord for your soul and for your sanctification and for your obedience. The Apostle Paul described in 2 Corinthians the great, he calls it anxiety that he had for all the churches under his care, the the weightiness of seeing sin and pride and rebellion and, and fear and slowness to learn of begging God for the continued sanctification of the members. Now, the pastor should always have friends in the church, but I am always reminded that I am a pastor first and your friend second. And there may be a moment when God calls me to stand alone. That is the calling. That is the burden. That's why the rest of Hebrews 13, 17 says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Dr. MacArthur Concerning Hebrews thirteen seventeen, he commented, that's a very strong statement and a very formidable one for a person in spiritual leadership. We have a sobering duty. We will give an account before God. That's a tough enough thing to have to live with. I am accountable to God for the condition of the sheep. I am accountable to God for the decisions I make. And we as a group of elders are accountable to God for what we decide as we seek the wisdom of the spirit. So he says, obey Stubborn, self-willed people will steal the joy of their pastors and give them grief. 
You want a miserable church? Have a miserable pastor. You want a miserable pastor? Don't submit and you'll take his joy away and he'll be a miserable man and you'll be a miserable people because they bear a burden. It is there for a reason. It is the calling. Let me give you one more reason to view your shepherds as a gift and that is for their life-changing ministry. For their life-changing ministry. The Apostle Paul wrote about the process of being changed, being altered into the image of Christ. He said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Dr. MacArthur wrote, All you need to know about God, all God wants to disclose about himself, all the beauty of his character, all his attributes, communicable and incommunicable, all his love and loyalty and mercy and grace and power and wisdom and all his compassion and sympathy and care, all his saving purpose, all his ability to supply everything we could ever need, all things necessary to save us, all things necessary to empower us, all things necessary to console and comfort us, all things necessary to equip us, all things necessary to prepare us for service and for glory, Everything we need is unveiled in Jesus Christ. And where do you learn this? You learn it from the preached word of God, which transforms your souls to be more and more like Christ. And we behold his glory. You've never met Jesus, but I know you know him because you've seen him in the word with three-dimensional clarity. It is in the word of God preached and taught and exalted because the light of the world is also called the word of God in the flesh. And God has raised up men to paint a picture of Christ from the Bible. And it changes us to be like him. So we view God's men as a gift because the Bible says so for their calling, for their training, for their testing, for their burden, for their life-changing ministry. And I got to say, this flies in, the, flies in the face of the idea that pastors and elders are, are merely employees of the church. We do not work for the church. We work for the Lord at the pleasure of the local church and for the benefit of the local church. Now, what happens or what should happen as a result of these gifts of men in the church? Well, we can quickly survey the rest of the text here in Ephesians 4 and just make a quick list. Oh, wonderful things happen. First of all, God activates the church. God activates the church. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. The ministry is not the job of the minister, so to speak. The ministry is the job of the members and the job of the shepherds is to equip you for the work of the ministry by means of the preached word of God. It's not my job to go to all of your coworkers and all of your family and proclaim Christ to them. It's my job to proclaim Christ to you so that you know how to do that work. It's a wonderful team effort, equipping the saints, building up this, this idea of deepening you in the word of God such that you are bleeding Bible when you open your mouth. God activates the church. What else does he do? God unifies the church. Verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Unity is based in sound doctrine, which is based and has its core in the person and work of Jesus Christ, what the Bible says about our Savior. And so these gifts of men activate the church. They unify the church. Here's a third wonderful result. God protects his church. 
He protects his church. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This is through the preached word. I have lost track of how many stories I've heard from you about coming to Grace Bible Church and realizing that you were believing heresy by accident because you had been misled or you had been taught something that that you didn't have any way to know that just because a guy stands behind a big wooden box, that must make it true, right? But a real sermon is an argument. It's not just somebody spouting their opinions. It is an argument from Scripture to prove a point to you from an objective source, and that source is God. And so it protects you. It keeps you safe from falsehood, from deception. God activates the church. He unifies the church. He protects the church. Another wonderful result, God sanctifies his church. He sanctifies his church. In verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ. You become truth bearers to one another. You become truth bearers to the world. You provide accountability to one another. You provide wonderful examples to each other. And you change, you become sanctified, you become set apart. God activates his church, unifies his church, protects his church, sanctifies his church, and God grows his church. He grows his church. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, that's the healthy functioning church, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 12 already covered spiritual growth. This is talking about numerical growth. Numbers of people. And all of this is rooted in the fact that Christ gave gifts of men. None of that happens without the preached word of God from men of God given the spiritual gifting from God. And now you have a healthy, healthy church. Dr. MacArthur wrote, if there's anything that grieves my heart across America, it is the fact that we have so many unhealthy churches. So many churches that do not know the power of God, the presence of God, the peace of God, the joy of God, that do not experience all the blessings of God that he pours out on those who are walking according to his will and moving ahead toward being like Jesus Christ. We have many, many unhealthy churches It's a continual grief to me to talk to pastors who are so deeply burdened because they're in a church that demonstrates a lack of spiritual commitment. One rather cynical writer looking at the church said that the church reminded him of Noah's Ark, of which he said, if it weren't for the storm outside, you couldn't stand the stench inside. We don't want to be that way. Listen, it's no accident that Satan has gone after the pulpits of the church by deluding them with mockers, deluding the pulpits with men who are imposters because there's literally no more important job on earth than proclaiming the word of God. I don't say that because I'm the one doing it. I say it because it's true objectively from scripture. And the functioning of the church depends on this. The saying is true. As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. That's the church's gift from God. So what do we do in response? Well, let's examine the church's gift to God. The church's gift to God, our response. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, and while you're finding that text, I want to read to you another text. You don't have to look this one up. Just go to 1 Timothy 5. But I want to read to you from 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. 
We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, in those two short verses, Paul instructs the church that they have three duties to the leadership of the church. The first one is respect. This is actually a word that means to know them, to understand their heart. It's the idea of listening and not shutting somebody out, but hearing and understanding. If you've been at Grace Bible Church for any period of time, maybe we're not the best of friends on a personal level, but you know me. You know me. I've preached over 600 times in this pulpit. You know my heart. And that's what we're to do. We're to know the, the heart of those who are over us. The second responsibility, the second duty is to esteem them. It means to regard in a certain way and they're to be regarded in love. We have no lack of that at Grace Bible Church and we're thankful for that. And then the third duty is to be at peace among yourselves. Let the leaders focus on the work of the ministry rather than constantly breaking up squabbles. Dr. MacArthur said, to esteem means to consider or to regard, to think. It means to go a little deeper than the first duty because it says you are to esteem them very highly. In the Greek, that is, beyond all measure. And then the key word, in love, because of their work. Not because of their personality. This is not a personality contest because of their work. You are to regard them beyond all measure. You are to regard a faithful pastor beyond all measure. The point is there's no limit to the regard you ought to have for that man, to the love you ought to have. Now, the text I'd like to consider in more detail in 1 Timothy 5 speaks of the issue of esteem and respect. Look with me at 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So we have a description of the elders in the church. They're worthy of, and let's just start with the, with the basic word, teme, of honor. They're worthy of honor. This is a word that can mean respect. It can mean high regard. But in this case, it's speaking of money. Several other times in the New Testament, teme is used associated with money. Matthew 27, in two places, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, even once at the very end of the Bible in, in Revelation 22, The context of verse 18 makes it very clear, speaking of wages. Now, the obvious question is, well, why didn't Paul just say money? Wouldn't that have been easier? Why why did he say honor? Well, I think there's two good reasons that, that he used a euphemism here. First of all, he's getting to the heart motivation because you can give money without giving honor. This morning in Sunday school, Joe talked about this, that you can put money in the offering and yet have bitterness in your heart about it. So the money is given with honor. It encompasses both. There's the heart attitude and there's the external action. But the second reason is, is I I think it's very simple. If Paul spoke only directly about money, it would eventually come across as very crass and it would become separated from the heart motivation and from the real issues. In fact, Paul used euphemisms for money all the time. Here's a list from the New Testament of other ways he refers to money. Fellowship, generous gift, sow, reap, grace, gift, blessing, good work, good things, seed, harvest of righteousness, a gift again, and here he calls it honor. It's, it conveys a sense of love and intimacy and, and spiritual significance. Now, does this mean that the church should pay all the elders? 
Not necessarily. Some elders earn their own living. I pastored for 16 years, primarily earning my own money outside the church. But for the teaching pastor, this is extremely difficult. It's ineffective and it's not helpful. So the elders do have the right to receive honor if they so choose. Should give you an example here. In 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul is defending his ministry. He's defending the freedom that he has to receive financial remuneration from the church. He said, do I not have the right to bring along a believing wife, to bring my family, to be supported, and so forth? And he spends 12 verses defending his right to be paid. And then he ends that section in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Corinthians 9. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, listen to this. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? What's he saying here? He's saying if you receive food and you pay for it, if you receive a place to live and you pay for it, if you receive a service and you pay for it, do not those who give you spiritual food have even more claim because they're imparting eternal things. But the Corinthians were very critical of Paul's ministry, so he didn't want to give them any other reason to be harsh with him. So in verse 12, he continues, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. In other words, you guys are not mature enough to understand this, so we're not taking a nickel from you. We're not going to do that. But an elder can choose to be supported or he can choose to be self-supporting. But we also see here from 1 Timothy 5 that there seems to be a difference, not in authority, not in importance, but a a functional difference between the, the general category of pastor or elder and the unique category of those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And they are to be worthy of double honor. MacArthur says, Quote, it's the idea of ample, generous support, remuneration, and respect. Now, it's not the idea of giving vast wealth and private jets and world cruises to the pastor, but neither is it the idea of undervaluing the preached word of God by valuing his role alongside that of other professions. Listen, the ministry is not a profession. I am not a professional pastor. I am an elder in the church of Jesus Christ that has chosen to be supported by the work. It can't be compared to anything else because the impact of pastoral ministry is quite literally eternal. It's the faithful preaching of the gospel which is the catalyst for your salvation in Christ, for the sanctification and the Christ-likeness of believers. I mean, how do you put a value on that? How do you value that? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 12 that the value of the ministry surpasses the value of other things In verse 11, he says, because they were sowing spiritual things among them. It is more important. Now, the United States government calls what pastors are paid a quote-unquote salary. That is not the idea conveyed in Scripture at all. Yes, Paul says that the laborer deserves his wages. That's making the point that if you value an ox that treads the grain, how much more should the shepherds of God's people be valued? Pastoral ministry, listen carefully, is not an exchange of services for a salary. That is not what it is. How would you quantify that? I'll give you an example. One of the roles of the pastor and elder is to spend time in prayer. Do we get an hourly prayer wage? Do I get more for praying after 5 p.m.? 
If I awaken in the middle of the night, do I get double overtime because I spent two hours in prayer for for some of you who are running away from Christ? Do I turn in a timesheet that says I, I worked on Saturday night and so that's double overtime and a half? It just says double honor. And it's a word that means, it's two words, it means honor upon honor. In other words, to the men who have been called by God into the role of leading and preaching and teaching to give up other pursuits They're to receive honor from the church so that they can minister completely unhindered, including whatever extended ministry God has called that man to undertake. It's to free him up to be as impactful and make as much influence as he possibly can. I heard a rather crass illustration of this, but it stuck with my heart. And the illustration was, is that your pastor is like a cannonball and you put him in the cannon and depending on how much gunpowder you put in there, that's how far he'll go. How far do you want it to go? It is not an exchange of services for money. It's a man called by God, honoring God by pouring his life into the preaching and teaching of Scripture. And it's the people of God honoring God by pouring their resources into the preaching and teaching of Scripture. It's a wonderful partnership. The preaching is as unto the Lord and the giving is as unto the Lord. John MacArthur characterizes the church's honor as being a gift of thanks passed back to the Lord. This is so beautiful. He says, and I agree with this from my own experience, quote, I know you pray for me. I know you care for me. I know that. I owe a debt of gratitude to God for that because I'm not worthy of that. That goes with the territory of being a channel through which the grace of God can flow to people, though it is God doing it all and God's spirit doing it all, As the thanks is passed back to God, somehow it gets passed through the channel it came through. He says that's a wonderful and exhilarating reality. The blessings of God through his word are channeled through the the leaders and your thanks is channeled back through them. That's a beautiful partnership. Many, many people have attempted to quantify what a pastor should or should not be paid based on formulas or comparisons. The views are literally endless. I read two different articles. One said the pastor should be paid in the top 20% of his congregation. The next one said he should be paid in the bottom 20% of his congregation. There's all kinds of formulas out there. The problem with all of them is that they're all based on an arbitrary standard on man's opinion. So the question is, which standard are you going to use? All Scripture says is give them honor and make it honor upon honor. And so armed with that godly attitude, elders make their best judgment. And for the church member who's cultivated that that beautiful attitude of giving, which shows appreciation and double honor, there's never a sense of bitterness, never a sense of resentment, but a continual sense of joy. They have the attitude which Dr. MacArthur describes once again. He says, you esteem your elders, your pastors, and you esteem your esteem for them has no limits. Whatever level of appreciation you have now, increase it in love. You are to love them because of what they do, and if they do not, you're in disobedience. If you do not, rather, you're in disobedience to these direct words of Scripture. That love means you seek their best. That love means you overlook their weaknesses and frailties. That love means you speak well of them. That love means you encourage them. That love means you lift them up as men of God, called by God, who have brought to you the truth. That's a happy church member. And a happy church member understands the church's gift from God, men who shepherd and teach them. They understand the church's gift to God, that is the honor and the respect and the remuneration which is given to God through the shepherds. 
And really the outworking of both of those then is the church's faith in God. The church's faith in God. And I want to just show you briefly, turn with me to Philippians chapter one. Philippians one. Philippians is basically a thank you note from Paul to the church at Philippi for their extremely generous financial support of his ministry. When I speak of the faith of the church in God, I'm speaking of the faith of the church to believe that they can be impactful. They can make a difference. They can be effective in gospel proclamation. And since the founding of the church in Acts chapter 2, that has been expressed in a partnership between shepherds and the sheep of God. And this is very poignantly illustrated here in Philippians chapter 1. Look with me at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What is this partnership in the gospel? Well, primarily he means finances. You've partnered with me. Verse seven, he says, you are all partakers with me of grace. It's the same root word as partnership. Partnership, grace, grace, partnership. What is it that they're supporting The rest of verse 7 says his imprisonment and then the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. In chapter 4, Paul says that the church at Philippi was the only church that was supporting him in this time when he was in prison. Chapter 4, verse 18, just listen, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. You know what this means? It means that Paul was literally sitting in prison and was wondering what to do with the pile of money that was growing next to him because the Philippians kept sending him stuff. But what's the whole key here? Was the church supporting Paul because he was a great guy? No. They were partnering with him in the proclamation of the gospel of Christ and it produced joy for everyone. It produced great joy. Dr. MacArthur wrote, whatever the church is of beauty, whatever the church is of joy, Whatever the church is of effectiveness, whatever the church is of power is dependent initially upon the relationship between the shepherds and the sheep, the sheep and the shepherds. Now, this is where all of this becomes instructive to us when it comes to a building campaign. We've given lots of reasons to proceed forward with this building campaign. There are good reasons. There are some reality check reasons such as our lease on this building and so forth. But I want to give you a premier, a a high level, a heavenly reason for this campaign in a minute. A number of years ago, Dr. MacArthur was preaching a series from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 called Stewardship with Integrity. And he asked the question, how do we know when a stewardship campaign, an opportunity to give, really has integrity? And his answer came in the form of three principles derived from Scripture. The first principle for stewardship with integrity, it calls for giving that is voluntary. It calls for giving that is voluntary. And he wrote, you want a rich life here? You want a rich life in eternity? Then give generously. But stewardship with integrity does not manipulate. It does not coerce. It does not intimidate. It does not demand. It does not assess or tax. It does not redistribute. It simply leaves the individual to do what his heart or her heart dictates. So it calls for giving that's voluntary. He gives a second principle of how you know a stewardship campaign has integrity. It calls for faithfulness to complete the commitment. It calls for faithfulness to complete the commitment. The Corinthian church had said, we'll give a certain amount. A year later, nothing. 
So 2 Corinthians 8, 11, Paul says, now finish doing it. Finish your commitment. Do what you said you're going to do. And the third principle for a, a campaign with integrity, it calls for amounts proportionate to what one has. It calls for amounts proportionate to what one has. And Dr. MacArthur also cites 2 Corinthians eight eleven in proof of that point. Just a few years before preaching that series, Grace Community Church started and completed a capital campaign to raise the funds for what is now called the Tower Building. It used to be called the J Building. That building now today is used about six days a week for discipleship, for worship, including, by the way, the seminary education of all of your pastors. And there's a photograph. It's an old photograph. It's 30 years old of several men, several of the elders holding shovels at the official groundbreaking. You've probably seen pictures like that before. Well, this week, I called one of the men who was holding one of those shovels. And I talked to him about that. And I I said, tell me about that campaign. Tell me what you did. Well, he described the church-wide push led by Dr. MacArthur to build that building. And he went through, here's the principles we maintained. We called to make sure that they knew that giving is voluntary. We called for commitments to give and faithfulness to complete the commitment. And we called for giving in proportion to what you have. The same principles. Exactly, by the way, what we are doing at Grace Bible Church. Why? Because that's what's prescribed in Scripture. This is not a man-made idea. This is God's idea. Now, let's talk about a premier and a high level and a heavenly reason for a building campaign, one that goes even far beyond the wonderful idea of changing our own hearts in regard to giving. This is a reason that has to do with the partnership between sheep and shepherds, shepherds and sheep. It has to do with eternity. It has to do with eternal destinies. You remember that we said that one of the outcomes of the gift of men given by God is the church grows numerically, grows in membership. Someone might say, well, we shouldn't aim for numerical growth. No, not for its own sake. And we certainly will never design a worship service to cater to an unbeliever because by definition, an unbeliever can't worship. There's no such thing as a worshiping unbeliever. But we should aim for the growth of the church through new believers who have heard the gospel of Christ through this ministry. If someone says we shouldn't aim for spiritual growth, can we take that to the logical conclusion? If we're going to be honest about it, what that really means is that we should call our security team to go lock the doors and we go stand at the windows and look at everybody outside and say, if you're going to hell, we're just fine with that. That's the logical conclusion. The shepherds of Grace Bible Church are committed to the biblical gospel, to the premier and the high level and the heavenly reason for a facility which will be more accessible, a useful place of worship because the lost are dying without Christ and the church is the means by which they hear the gospel. That's why we do this. Listen, Jesus told the disciples they're going to be fishers of men. They were great guys. They just weren't the brightest And so they're kind of scratching their heads. And so Jesus gives them a living illustration of how they're going to be fishing, what that fishing for men should look like. So he told some of the men, put your nets out into the water. And Luke 5 records, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners to the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Listen, if the Lord gives us a a more visible facility, perhaps even a larger facility, whether it's through new construction or a remodel or some other option, yes, it would be great to have more space. Yes, it would be great to have more worship options. Yes, it would be great to have more children's ministry uh, availability. Yes, all the things that we think would make it nicer. But here's my prayer. And here's your prayer as it ought to be that a lost soul is invited by one of you. Somebody drives by and sees new construction or they see something going on and they come inside and they see a pulpit on fire with the exaltation of Jesus Christ and they hear the life-giving words of the eternal gospel and they feel the love of the body of Christ through the singing and the fellowship and they smell the fragrance of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they taste and see that the Lord is good. I have a driving ambition as the preaching pastor of Grace Bible Church when it comes to joyful generosity. I want to go fishing. I want to go fishing and to catch the elect in the net of the gospel of Christ by the power of the Spirit. And then you go to work loving and discipling them, those precious new ones. And it all started with that beautiful partnership between the sheep and the shepherds, the shepherds and the sheep. God's gift to the church, the men of God, the church's gift to God, giving to the ministry of those men and the church's faith in God that we would together be used for great and mighty and eternal things. That makes for happy sheep. That makes for happy shepherds. One of the best illustrations I've ever seen of this is a beautiful partnership that happens quite often right here. There's a group of children in our church and they know who they are. They're very little, and so they don't have any money to put in the offering bag. They're very small, and so they don't really have any spiritual gifts with which to serve. But instinctively, they've developed a love for their pastors. Very often, I receive from them a picture of the church or a picture of me and all the words that they're big enough to write, words like Jesus and gospel and sin and repentance and one even took a shot at justification (laughs) I cherish those gifts because it expresses the heart of of Christ's church the love of the church for her shepherds and for the gospel of Christ we've said it before if you're not eager to give to joyful generosity that's completely your decision as for me for my family we're going to do all we can because it is a wonderful privilege to be a part of God's kingdom plan March 10th, Commitment Sunday, our family is bringing our one-time initial gift. We're also bringing our commitment card, and I hope you will do the same. On March 24th, Celebration Sunday, we're going to honor the Lord for his work among us and look forward to three years of seeing him be faithful. And once more, in honor of the amazing ministry of John MacArthur, let me close with a quote about generous giving. Speaking of the generous churches in Macedonia, listen to this. This This is beautiful. John writes, Quote, they gave out of love for God and for his servants. Generosity is impossible apart from our love of God and of his people, but with such love, generosity is not only possible, but inevitable. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we, we bless you and thank you for involving us in your kingdom plan that the gospel of Christ, which so gloriously saved us, that the cross which was explained to us by faithful men who had it explained to them by faithful men who had it explained to them by faithful men, 
that for 2,000 years you've been raising up men to proclaim eternal truths to our hearts until all the way until here in the 21st century, 2,000 years later, your servants have continued to be faithful and because of their faithfulness, we sit here honored to be brothers and sisters of one another, honored to be brothers and sisters of our big brother, Jesus Christ, honored to be part of the family of God. And it is incumbent upon us that should the Lord tarry, should he wait to return a little longer, that those in the 22nd century and 23rd century, should you tarry, would be able to trace their spiritual heritage, at least in part, back to a little church in Bakersfield, California, that was faithful, that proclaimed the gospel to their friends and their co-workers and their family, who in turn continued that process. And so it is with a sense of joy and a sense of sobriety that we know that we are the, the torchbearers, that we are the, the pillar and buttress of the truth, as Paul told Timothy, that we hold the gospel of Christ dear to us to be shared, to be given, to be proclaimed. And so, Lord, make us faithful to that work. We pray in our body that you would always maintain that wonderful relationship, that wonderful love between shepherds and sheep and sheep and shepherds, and that as a result, together we would have great faith to do more than we thought possible for the kingdom, to see many, many lost sheep come into the fold. We thank you, Lord, even for next week that we get to baptize several who have come to faith even just in in the last number of weeks and months. And we bless you and thank you for involving us in that vital work of kingdom citizenship. We pray that you would be honored through our efforts and that you would multiply our efforts such that someday before your heavenly throne, we as a church body, as the church is listed in Revelation 2 and 3, that we would stand together commended for a job well done. We pray these things so that our Lord and Savior, the King of Kings, would be honored and glorified. For it is in his name we pray. Amen and amen.